0: One of the points that you've been alluding to is democratization of the AB experiment culture. Right? It should not be the mainstay of just the product team to run the AB experiment. Um, if we were to run AB experiment at scale, it's important for us to actually allow everyone to uh, sort of run AB experiment, whether it's the product team or the marketing team. So that decentralization is extremely important.
1: Hi guys, welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast where we keep an eye on everything product, tech, and startups. Hope you guys are enjoying these podcasts. I'm Ankit and with me is Tejas. Hey Ankit. Uh, Hey Tejas. Uh, Today we are going to be talking about A-B testing in the gaming space and best practices for experimentation. And we have with us Saurabh Mehta, head of product at Rami Circle, which is India's largest gaming company. Good morning, Saurabh.
2: Good morning guys, thanks a lot for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for doing this on a Sunday morning. So uh, Saurabh, tell us a bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Uh, currently, I lead the product team at Rummy Circle, uh, where I focus on building a better Rummy experience for my players every day. Uh, before Rummy Circle, I uh, built a B2B product uh, catering to the market research industry. And uh, before that, I was a technical product manager at CaliP Consulting, uh, which is a market leader in employee engagement and customer engagement space.
1: Mm-hmm. So, uh, sort of just sort of just to set the context for the podcast, why AB experimentation?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, in my opinion, AB experiments enables to get feedback from users uh, at scale, and to ensure that we only launch features that are beneficial to our users. By doing an a- experiment, we are able to measure the precise impact of the feature, and thus make changes to user journeys that. Uh, that are done in a very, very methodical and scientific way.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, for uh, One of the questions that I hear a lot is, what can be tested? And the answer really is that everything in a digital product can be tested. Do you want to talk a little bit about this?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, when you think about it, that in this uh, day and age where almost uh, every component uh, or, or, or every part of our life is touched by uh, digital products be it uh, online ordering platform or ticketing platform you're right that uh, anything and everything can be tested so it becomes an important consideration what does one want to test in an AB experiment so for me an AB experiment test changes along one or more of the following three dimensions an AB test uh, might just be about making say copy changes on your landing page or second, say, uh, improving the journey from the functional standpoint. By that, what I mean is, uh, say, you're an online ticketing platform, and uh, you have found a way to cut the number of steps required to uh, book a ticket. Or third, maybe there's some back-end component that has made the system more reliable or faster. So uh, to summarize, these are the three uh, different broad vectors along which. you can make changes maybe you are doing some non-functional copy changes or say second some improvement in the journey or maybe it's just like underlying unlike like underlying infrastructure that you change that is uh, going to improve the experience so many times what happens is an experiment uh it is very like it is very rare that an experiment will just change only one of these components it's usually a mix of one or three components so uh Therefore, it becomes very important to call out that what changes that you are making could be measures, uh, could be measured, and what changes would not be measured.
0: So, you mentioned that some changes can be measured and others can't. If you cannot measure, doesn't it defeat the purpose of AB experiments? And I'm just wondering, at what point does one take a judicious call whether to do an AB
1: experiment? know, maybe the right question is not whether we should be doing an ab experiment or not uh, but a better question is how to design an ab experiment if you have multiple things to test at the same time
2: yeah so let's actually dwell a bit deeper into this uh, and I, I think i think uh, an example will be really helpful over here and um, since since most of us are used to say uh, online uh, ticketing platform or say food ordering platform uh, Let's just use that as, a, uh, that as an example. Say uh, you're a PM at an online ticketing company and thought of a journey that would improve the online experience of booking a ticket. Uh, maybe as compared to the existing journey, the new journey not only reduces the steps involved in booking, but also improves the communication message along the way. Uh, here, the PM has made actually two changes. First, faster ticketing experience, and second, improve the communication as well now if you launch the experiment and the test path wins the pm can surely claim the test path is better but it would be hard to appropriate what proportion of the improvement that you are seeing can be attributed to the faster ticketing experience and what part can be attributed to the improved communication therefore when you have multiple things to test you either design the experiment construct such that you would be able to measure each change or you just just categorize the changes in broad buckets and say that this is the broad bucket that is going to be tested against the control. And within that, it will be hard to appropriate uh, to each and every component, but that would be fine. So that's how one has to uh, very judiciously call out that what components I'm going to measure and what components I'm not going to measure.
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, one uh, very interesting example I came across was, you know, I was browsing through one of these fantasy cricket apps and saw that this app was offering, you know, expensive mobile phones as winning prize for one of the tournaments. So I checked with the product manager of uh, My11Circle since, you know, uh, Rami Sagar and My11Circle, we both sit out of the same office and he's a good friend. So I checked, out with, and, uh, I checked out with him and, you know, I just suggested this to him. And he mentioned they were, they were actually running an AB experiment in which the control path was a cash prize and the test path was white goods. I mean, obviously I can't disclose which path won, but according to him, one of the path, you know, saw a much better participation rate.
0: Yeah. So let's shift gears and talk about how do you typically go about performing A-B test at scale? I'm sure there are several interesting anecdotes from your experience in the gaming space.
2: Sure. Uh, well, there are various steps involved in setting up and conducting, uh, conducting NAB experiments. So let's just cover them using an example from uh, Real Money Gaming Space. Um, before I dwell deeper, I'll just like, uh, give the context to the listeners that in Real Money Gaming Space, patrons have the option to cash out their winnings. And that is they can withdraw their winnings into their bank accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the longest time withdrawals for Remy Circle players got processed in two working days of being requested. At some point, one of the colleagues put out a hypothesis that maybe faster withdrawal processing would be a better player experience on two fronts. First, for new players, it just enhances trust. Second, for repeat players, it just reduces the transit time for money. That is, now patrons will now get their money faster. And if they want to redeploy part of those winnings back into the game, they would be able to exercise that option now. So uh, certainly uh, there were few proponents of that. But at the same time, few of few of us were quite skeptical about this because we thought that if we allow players to start instantly cashing out their winnings, then they would not churn their money as much as they are doing now. So how do we take a call whether we should be building that feature or not? And that's where an ab experiment really really helps to settle such debates ab experimentation framework comes in quite handy so uh, with that with that background in mind i'll just like uh, break it down uh, that few of the things that we should be keeping in mind uh, before we even uh, launch an ab experiment so to start with as we talked about that having a good hypothesis and hypothesis is nothing but an idea uh, that you really want to test and there has to be a way to measure that. And this brings me to the next part. If if you can really measure that, it means that there has to be some metric along which you would want to measure. And uh, when you think of a hypothesis, you obviously have a user group in mind that would be subjected to that experience. So that's my third part. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, depending on various different experiences, you would want to build for that user set. And by experiences, what I mean is that, uh, in this specific case, we just have two paths. One, where you're offering instant withdrawal, and second, you're not offering instant withdrawal, but that is usually not always the case. You can have such experiments which have multiple paths as well. So it becomes quite important to uh, understand that how many experiences you're going to offer, so on and so forth, and basis all these things uh, the last part, which is how do you conclude the experiment? Obviously, there are a few sanity exercises as well that you need to do before you even launch the experiment, and that includes ensuring that before you launch the experiment, there is no existing bias in the uh, user base behavior that you have, so that once you launch the experiment, uh, the influence is only because of the AB experiment and, uh, and nothing else. Yeah. I think
0: instant withdrawal is one of my favorite examples of uh, how A-B experiments can help us uh, test some counterintuitive learnings through data. Um, so sorry we talked about a bunch of things uh, but I think there's one important facet of setting up an A-B experiment that we haven't covered yet and uh, it is the sample size required for the A-B experiment. To so Just to explain this concept, let's just probably take an example. Let's say I am the product manager at Uber. And uh, I want to test out a new onboarding journey to improve the conversions rate. I'm expecting that the new onboarding journey would at least bump up my conversions by 5%. Let's say my current conversion rate was 10%. So I I would uh, believe that this experiment would uh, allow me to bump up the conversion rates from 10% to 10.5%. Uh, so while so just uh, that's the context of the experiment. So while estimating the sample size required to conclude the experiment, there are three things that I'll look at. The first thing is the baseline. In the, in the current example that I shared, the current uh, conversion rate, which is 10%, would form my baseline. Second is the minimum detectable effect. Now this term sounds heavy, but essentially it just means that uh, what is the minimum bump that I expect from the experiment. Uh, I mentioned that uh, I'm expecting a minimum of 5% as the bump from this experiment. So, my minimum detectable effect becomes 5%. And lastly, I would also want to look at the statistical significance. Now, statistical significance is nothing but the acceptable threshold that we decide for the false positive rate. And it is closely linked to the concept of p-value.
2: Sure, so uh, before we, before we uh, go there, I think it is like, uh, that's quite important to understand that why sample size estimation is important. Uh, say an example of instant withdrawals where we just had two parts. Now think of another experiment where you have six or seven parts. Now, before you launch the experiment, you as a PM have to take a call how long do you think you would want to run the experiment? If that experiment is going to run, say, for six months, it means that for that six <laughs> months, that set of user are completely tied to that specific journey. Therefore, sample size estimation is, is a uh, very, very good check before you uh, even think of launching those many number of paths. So uh, that's why that is one 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 way, very, 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 very critical component that one has to keep in mind, uh, and then uh, basis that take a call, uh, number of parts that you want to have, so on and so forth. So uh, now no, let's just circle back uh, where we left. And what we we're talking about is that uh, the p-value. P-value is uh, nothing but uh, the probability of occurrence of false positives. So let me just explain by an example. Uh, let's say that um, in your office there's a file around. Uh, and that fire alarm uh, can go off, uh, but usually it is supposed to go off only when there's a fire. But if that fire alarm goes off uh, with no fire, that's a false positive, uh, which is known as type 1 error. And the probability of occurrence of type 1 error is nothing but p-value. And I'll just uh, tie it back to the example that they just gave that, that uh, we are improving the onboarding journey for Uber, and we are expecting a uh, bump up in conversion rate by 5%. So let us say, uh, in this specific example, uh, we are seeing a bump up uh, of, of, say, 6%. And if the p-value of that experiment is, uh, say, 3%, what that means is there's just 3% chance that we are seeing false positive signals over here. Which is 97% of the time, we should be completely fine to roll out that to the whole population. So that's why it becomes a a very, very uh, strong indicator whether we uh, we should be rolling out that experience to all users or not.
1: So uh, sort of from my experience, you know know that uh, when you do an A-B experiment, you don't release uh, the feature to, let's say, 100% of the user. It really depends on the riskiness of the feature which you're launching. And, you know, you might just want to release a feature to, let's say, 10% of the users. So probably for from your experience in gaming, if you can tell us by an example, you know, uh, how do we go about, you know, spreading the users?
2: Sure. Uh, unlike, unlike many other industries where, uh, where uh, there's not a disproportionate change in the spending pattern that you see among its users. Real money gaming is very different. It is mostly driven by a very less number of high value players. And uh, that's exactly what you're talking about, that uh, there's a high risk associated to uh, something. So in that case, how do we take a call, whether we should be exposing uh, all the users to the experiment or not? So The framework that I follow uh, whenever I'm thinking of launching any experiment is, I evaluate that on two vectors. First, uh, the frequency of occurrence of that given journey. Uh, And I'll give an example on that as well. And second is criticality of that journey. So uh, first, what we talked about is frequency of occurrence of uh, that given journey or experience. For example, if you are doing an experiment on, say, registration journey or login journey. Uh, On a mobile app product, where most of the time, people are auto-logged in or they register only once in their lifetime, that's a very, very uh, low-frequency occurrence. Uh, And on the second vector, which is criticality of a given journey, yes, onboarding or sign-up login is quite critical. But then it's very standard. You would not see... A lot of variation in the journeys across various products that we use so because it's quite standard it's relatively safe whereas take another example of the game room game room is specific to businesses like rummy circle game room is uh, very much different than what is offered by other products and because players spend significant more amount of time on the game room Uh, For me, that's a very, very high frequency occurrence event, and quite critical as well. Therefore, when I'm taking a call, whether I should be exposing all my users to a given experiment or not, these are the two vectors which I evaluate on.
0: Yeah. In fact, I would like to also talk about one of the AB experiments that I had run, uh, which was on the payments journey. Um, In that experiment, I was uh, looking to test the new UI for the payments journey. Uh, and wanted to figure out whether that leads to a bump up in the conversion that deposits. So sort of you talked about how uh, we need to look at uh, what is the criticality of uh, the A/B experiment. And uh, that's where I would want to sort of link that concept with the example that that I'm giving. Uh, So I could have very well gone ahead and launched this experiment to all the users in one go. So that would have been a highly plain vanilla approach. But instead, um, the approach that we adopted was a slightly more prudent one given the criticality. So we kind of launched this only for the new registered players, uh, wanted to test how they um, react to this new UI, and also keeping in mind that the new users did not have any prior exposure to the existing payments journey. As against, let's say, an old habituated user who is highly accustomed to viewing the ad cash journey or the payments journey in a certain way. So broadly, the takeaway is that we would have different sets of experiments for these different cohort of users. The first one was for the new registered users, and the second one, which would be a follow-up experiment, would be for the old habitual users habituated users. Uh,
1: So now that we have uh, covered that, we don't necessarily expose uh, 100% of the users to the AB experiments. Sort of what are the different ways to split the users into parts?
2: Um, Various ways, actually. Like uh, 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 some of the companies follow a dynamization approach. By that, what I mean is that uh, given you have already identified uh, the user group, on which you would want to run the experiment, uh, they would randomly allocate the users to uh, one path or the other. Uh, that's that's certainly the most mainstream one, I would say. Uh, yeah. Uh,
0: while researching for this podcast, I also came across uh, some of the other interesting approaches that uh, a lot of social network companies are following. And uh, to take one example, uh, I went through the blog by OKCupid on Medium. And they talk about uh, the clustering-based technique, which is different from the random uh, random allocation of users for splitting uh, the user traffic, right? So let's just, ex- uh, let's just try to understand this with the help of an example. So uh, let's say OKCupid launched a new video chat feature. Um, it's upon the product manager to decide uh, how to expose this video chat feature to uh, the test and the control group. There are broadly two approaches. The first one is allow the test group which has the exposure to the video chat feature to interact with everyone, which includes even the control group. The drawback there is, of course, that the control group who does not have uh, access to the video chat feature will get diluted. It will, uh, you know, since it has exposure to the video chat feature, it wouldn't be a pure, pure control per se. The second approach is that we limit the video chat feature to only the test group, wherein only the test group interact amongst each other and are able to experience the video chat feature. Again, it is uh, it has its own set of drawbacks because uh, the users might buy in into a feature that's intermittent. We do not yet know the uh, whether this feature is successful or not. And it might just corner <coughs> the experience uh, of these users, right? Uh, they might just be so bought into the feature that the it may really, Relate into an uneven experience between the test group and the control group. So, uh, given these limitations, OkCupid and a lot of other social network companies actually follow this approach called a clustering-based technique, wherein they cluster uh, users based on uh, you know non-interacting group of cohorts, and uh, you know that allows them to uh, follow a somewhat different approach than just pure random user-based allocation.
2: Yeah, yeah. I completely uh, see that uh, this, uh, this example uh, runs across not only on the social gaming platform, but I can generally uh, apply this to uh, other companies as well, which enable uh, on their product uh, interactions between their user base. So uh, just as taking an example from Rummy Circle, where on the game table, players interact with each other uh, you would you would find a, a similar uh, approach that we follow as well. For example, uh, on a given game table, I would want to have all my players have same set of capabilities. And if I were to give an example, let us say that uh, you are building some sort of help widget for the players. Now, if that help widget is available to only... Uh, randomly allocated players. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then, then, then uh, on the game table, you are actually empowering few users and not the other. Therefore, uh, the clustering approach uh, works in this specific case as well. That when I launch my uh, experiment, I would cluster my users, yeah. and those set sort of cluster, uh, that cluster which is part of the test path, all of them will get that feature. Mm-hmm. But uh, the limitation is only that's it. Has to be part of that experience. They cannot be seated uh, with the players uh, coming from the control path. So that's uh, that's how uh, like uh, clustering re- really helps. But then, as they just mentioned, that sometimes it's it's uh, becomes quite tricky because uh, the feature is not completely out yet. So it's intermittent in nature, and uh, you would you would certainly get an uneven experience uh, uh, on the game table for some players and not the others. Uh,
1: By the way, have you guys observed that when you open Netflix, your homepage feed will be different from someone else's? So, you know, till now we've talked about random allocation or clustering for splitting the user base. However, the drawback of these approaches is that it takes a lot of time to conclude the experiment as one user is exposed to only one experiment. Uh, However, companies like Netflix use a technique called interleaving uh, to expose multiple test paths at the same time. Now, this considerably reduces the required sample size as compared to, let's say, a traditional A/B testing. So, I'll just explain to you, you know, what uh, interleaving means. So, so, when you open Netflix, you see rows of movies and TV shows, right? Now, most of uh, Netflix users do not know, but any given at any given point of time, Netflix could be testing multiple recommendation algorithms that drive this homepage. Let's say in the section or a row called "Trending Now" on Netflix, the first title is Brooklyn 99. 9 which is recommended by algorithm A, and the second title is "Zindagi Na which is recommended by algorithm B, and thereafter the titles keep alternating between recommendations from algo A and algo B. Or uh, Netflix decides which is the better recommendation algorithm by comparing shares of R's viewed viewed by a user for each algorithm, and you know for a given users uh, for a given user Netflix intertwined you know multiple ranking algorithms together and this basically means interleaving so if I were to just explain interleaving in uh, English it means mixing by alternating.
0: I think we have broadly covered uh, what are the different ways uh, that we split the user traffic uh, some of the interesting techniques that uh, even Ankit mentioned around interleaving uh, I believe there are certain other use cases as well uh, yeah. Ankit. so example uh, let's say the
1: Google search results ranking also qualifies as an interleaving example, I believe. Yes. Um, By the way, you guys should check out uh, the Netflix engineering blog on Medium. That's uh, brilliant, actually, if you want to refer for A-B testing or experimentation. yeah,
0: would totally uh, recommend that. Um, So let's shift gears and uh, talk about when is the right time to conclude an A-B experiment.
2: Sure. So um, I would give a broad stroke answer to that first uh, but then obviously we can dwell deeper as well uh, if required. So um, given that we have launched an AB experiment and say it has, it has two parts and you have been running experiment for some time, uh, there are two questions uh, that I uh, ask myself before I take a call to conclude the experiment or not. First is that, am I seeing a significant difference in the performance of test versus control? And second is that, do I have sufficient sample size that gives me confidence that the set difference that I'm seeing would indeed hold true after I conclude the experiment? So if I get uh, answer to the second question is yes, that is, I have sufficient sample size to give me confidence that the set difference is would indeed hold true, then uh, I look for uh, answer to the first question, whether uh, the difference is significant or not. Uh, it's quite possible that significance is not there in terms of the difference in performance of test versus control. And that goes back to Tejas earlier point of uh, minimal detectable uh, bump up or effect that you want to see. If that's not there, it means that what I hypothesized earlier uh, is not not holding out true. Uh, So at that point of time, uh, one needs to take a call whether uh, we need to revert to the control path or or uh, we just continue the experiment a bit longer. Now, uh, going back to the two questions which I mentioned earlier, uh, if the sample size is sufficient and if you are seeing a significant difference in the performance, then yes, certainly, you can uh, move forward and uh, conclude the experiment in favor of the test path.
0: I think one thing that you mentioned is the sample size, and uh, it's uh, almost hilarious how, uh, as product managers, when we start out our AV experiments, we are always, uh, you know, hooked to figure out uh, whether the p-values are coming significant or not, even like five or 10 days into the experiment. Uh, so we always have that itch, whether our test is working better than control, right? Um, it's almost like waiting for a result of an exam. And uh, so that's really been a, a hot uh, discussion topic or debate uh, you know, between statisticians and product managers as to whether we should actually look at p-values before we reach the sample size, right? And statisticians uh, advise against looking at the p-values before we have reached that minimum sample size, right? Uh, That is because the power of the test uh, with lower sample sizes could be low. This means that the p-value may not actually be observable in the
1: sample. Yeah, so I'll just explain, you know, uh, try to explain what power is. Power basically describes the likelihood of observing a p-value so assuming 5% significant level, significance level, 50% power means that the study has a 50% chance of ending up with p-value of less than 5% in a statistical test. Now, as the sample size of a test increases, the power of the test increases. Hence, you might observe a significant p-value with lower sample size, but the power of the test could be lower. And with a higher sample size, the power of the test increases. And usually, uh, most studies accept a power of uh, 80%. So I was talking to uh, one of the data
0: scientists at uh, yeah. Robbie Circle, and uh, we were discussing if we are peeking into the p-values, uh, you know, what are we really making out of it? And I think it boils down to the point that you mentioned, which is as the sample size increases, the power of the testing increases, increases. right? So uh, one of the points that you were discussing was that, let's say, even though we have not reached the minimum sample size, but we are, let's say, 30 or 40 days into the experiment, we are close to reaching the... Uh, the minimum sample size. What p-value can help us do is to understand the directionality of the experiment. Correct. Uh, it may still not be enough for us to conclude the experiment, but we definitely get an understanding about the directionality.
2: And and as a and as a product person, that is quite important because uh, based is the direction of the uh, uh, the way the experiment is going, you would certainly want to plan out your next set of actions. Uh, absolutely. So so and un- uh, un- and and that early peaking. Might or might not be actionable. It, is, it just helps you mentally prepare whether, if I need to take that action, uh, what I should be thinking around. So uh, you might not uh, take action before you uh, achieve a uh, minimum size, but that's okay. At least, at least, directionally, you are completely clear uh, which way you would roll if you had to take a call at that point of time. Yeah. As we're thinking through the journey of,
0: once the AV experiment is launched, what do we do? We look at the p-value. There are certain other uh, sanity measures as well that we need to look at. Uh, The first and foremost would be detection of outliers and removing them from the data. Uh, One of the simple examples here could be that when I'm analyzing uh, the revenue, I could just shave off the top 0.5 percent uh, of the users by revenue because they're greatly uh, swaying my data and uh, could affect the uh, results. And sort of I think you mentioned the examples of instant withdrawals earlier during the podcast. Uh, that's a that's a good example to talk about how we should look at the triggered users and not all users. Now, with the instant withdrawal experiment, if I've exposed thousand users to the test paths in the uh, instant withdrawals, perhaps only 200 users actually avail the instant withdrawal facility so in this particular case we will analyze only the triggered users which in this case are specifically the 200 users right um, other thing that becomes extremely important is how we need to look at different cohorts of users who are using this feature right so in this in, in the particular case of instant withdrawals is it being used by the most engaged users or is it also helping us build trust amongst our new users
2: Hmm. I'll just I'll just go back to uh, uh, the example that they just gave in terms of uh, triggered users, and I'll just like uh, generalize that. Like, uh, what do we mean by triggered users? In this specific case, those users avail the facility of instant withdrawal. So what that means is they were they were part of that experience. Now um, let's just try to generalize that. Say uh, if you revamp your login journey uh, all the users who perform that login action uh, experience that journey therefore uh, in that case they become the triggered users similarly if you are say re- uh, revamping your uh, deposit journey in that case doesn't mean that all the all the users will become part of the experiment just the users who perform the ad cash journey will be considered as as a set of cohort who was uh, part of the experiment and they experience that, that journey and hence qualified for uh, to be analyzed in the uh, data that you're going to look at. So that's, like, that's where one needs to be very mindful of that in the experiment uh, where the person uh, has experienced the change that you brought in and only those users need to be included as part of the analysis. Yeah,
0: results can truly be deceptive because uh, if you have... Uh, looking at the entire thousand users, it could just throw up a completely different world. Uh, Last thing I want to touch uh, touch upon when we're talking about the analysis of A-B experiments is the novelty effect. Uh, So oftentimes what we observe is the bump up that we have figured out in the A-B experiment uh, of tests performing better than control that may not continue after the conclusion. And one of the prominent reasons there could be the novelty effect. Uh, The broad idea of... uh, how to figure out whether novelty effect is uh, uh, is is really uh, you know playing a role is that you control for the other ab experiment that are running and figure out uh what is the what is the true impact of this feature post the
1: full rollout uh that's basically the idea yeah so, uh, Tejas and Saurabh, you know, we have discussed how and why we run an AB experiment. It would be good to spend some time to you know discuss what are the various techniques used by uh, companies.
0: Yeah, so I'll I'll probably touch upon the fixed horizon AB test uh, methodologies. Uh, what does fixed horizon basically means? These are the conventional AB testing methodologies, right? Uh, in this in these methodologies, we run AB tests for a specific period of time. And the results are compared based on the p-value that we earlier talked about. Now there are a range of different AB experiments that we test. Uh, it could be chi-square test, t-test, Wilcoxon test, and uh, which test that we use is based on the nature of the data as well as uh, you know certain other considerations as to whether we are testing
1: proportions, whether yep. we are testing
0: absolute metrics,
1: etc. Yeah, uh, and you know, you know, as we've already discussed, there can be multiple paths in an A-B experiment. Let's say in the fixed horizon A-B testing techniques, you know, which Tejas you mentioned, even the unoptimized paths run for the entire duration of the experiment. Now, this is a huge opportunity cost to the company as it leads to, you know, lost revenue because of not being on the most optimized path in real time. And that's where, you know, MAB comes in. Now, MAB basically stands for multi Bandit. It's a very fancy term. So what it does is basically optimizes iteratively for the winning path, thereby reducing the opportunity cost of continuing on the most, uh, on, on the, you know, unoptimized test path. It achieves this through the process of exploration and exploitation in real time.
0: Yeah, so let's break down the concept of exploration and exploitation Yeah. for our listeners. So simple example... Let's say we usually, uh, when we prepare for podcasts, uh, we order the coffee from Swiggy and we end up ordering from Blue Tokai, which is our favorite coffee place. However, sometimes we tend to explore other options as well, like Cafe Coffee Day, Coffee by Dibella, and Starbucks. So in this context, exploitation means ordering from the most preferred option, which in this case is Blue Tokai. Let's say we order from Blue Tokai 6 out of 10 times. And for the remaining 4 out of 10 times, we are trying out other options, which is nothing but exploration. Over time, our preferences may change. So our favorite coffee outlet might change. Uh, and hence, the most preferred option might just become coffee by develop. So what a multi arm banded algorithm uh, would do is optimize uh, to the most preferred path in real time. Yeah. Yep. Sure. So let me
2: just uh, give an give a example from the gaming space as well. Uh, and, and let's say that you are a PM at... Um, for the game Temple Run. And say uh, you created an A-B experiment uh, on the themes that we show to the users. And um, say we have three themes. One is uh, a forest theme, second volcanic theme, and third say winter theme. Now uh, as a PMI objective in this experiment is to optimize the gameplay time. At any given point of time, each player will be exposed to only one of these three themes. Uh, while well, the gameplay mechanics and difficulty uh, level of the game for the players uh, remain the same as it was before. So when I start the experiment, uh, all the three themes will get uh, equal amount of traffic in terms of uh, the players that we split. So at this stage, it's called exploration, that I'm exploring that which theme uh, is performing better. I don't know that yet. But after a certain time, when we compare three paths on... Uh, the given metric, which is the gameplay metric, then it is possible that one of the paths is significantly underperforming the other two. It means that it uh, it's about time to lower the traffic that we send to this underperforming path. If we would have done this in classic A-B uh, methodology, then up until the significance is achieved for uh, one specific path, this path would have received... Uh, an equal amount of traffic. But now, in this specific case, because I'm pruning down uh, the the traffic for a given path, it means that I'm able to exploit the remaining two paths so as to reach the best performing path as soon as possible. So MAB allows me to do that.
0: Yeah, I think one thing I want to touch upon here is that with MAB, the exploited path can differ by user cohorts. right? The, uh, you can actually have different user cohorts for which, uh, you know, for, for one cohort, the exploited part could be different. For the others, the exploited yep. part could be different. And MAB
1: as a methodology allows you to sort of achieve that. Yep, yep. That's a lot of interesting techniques uh, of, you know, uh, doing the A-B test. So I think we've covered the mechanics of how and why to run A-B experiments. However, I would like to come down to arguably the most important facet of experimentation, which is... Building the culture of A-B testing and being data-driven in a company. Uh, being a product leader, Saurabh, I'm sure you would have an opinion on what it takes to build a culture of uh, experimentation in a company.
2: Sure. So so um, for that, I'll actually go back to uh, like 10 years back when, when uh, uh, games 24 Games 7 was just uh, starting out. Uh, obviously, at that like at that time, I was not part of the company yet. But uh, I could I could certainly uh, imagine uh, that uh, uh, being a co-founder in some other company. I know the I know that when you're just starting out, at that time, the first and foremost thing that you worry about is that have I achieved a product market fit or not. I'm just trying to validate the value that my product is going to offer to my uh, users my consumers. So at that point of time you might not be at a scale where you would be able to run multiple experiments. So at that point uh, what really matters to you is are you are you uh, is like is your product uh, fit for the market or not. Once you have achieved that then comes the part of optimizing that product. And that's where uh, the various journeys that you optimize on and so forth uh, comes into play. That's where having a very good infrastructure, having very good tools and processes around running A/B experiments help. Uh, we have reached where we have reached because of a very, very uh, methodical and analytical approach that we uh, take in terms of running the experiments and planning the journeys for the users. So, uh, At the initial stage of the company, it's it's all about ensuring you are uh, survey like you are you are serving the needs of the customer. But after that, it's about am I doing it in a best possible manner or not? So over the last uh, few years, we have certainly uh, improved a lot of processes and built so many tools that help us do that. Um, so if you we were to uh, dwell a bit deeper into that, that what, like, what kind of tools and processes does one need to run the AB experiments uh, very robustly. Uh, think of a large company where, where uh, different departments are running different experiments, and uh, it's quite possible that for a given user cohort, uh, different experiments are being planned by different teams, and uh, each of them are not even aware that others are also planning some experiment. So it becomes uh, quite important to uh, have a common infrastructure, so to say, where things can be called out, where things can be communicated. So um, that's what what we have in-house that helps us uh, do that. So that certainly helps. Uh,
0: I think one of the things that you mentioned is uh, how different experiment owners and uh, product managers need yeah. to be aware about the experiment that are running in the company, right? So I think one of one of the points that you've been alluding to is democratization of the AB experiment culture, right? It should not be the mainstay of just the product team to run the AB experiment. Um, if we were to run AB experiment at scale, it's important for us to actually allow everyone to uh, sort of run AB experiment, whether it's the product team or the marketing team. So that decentralization is extremely important
2: yeah yeah and 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 uh, and to uh specifically uh ensure that what needs to be done to achieve that let us say that um, as a pm when you're launching a, a experiment you already know uh, the objective function or the metric that you're going to impact uh but then that's just part of the uh, feature launch that you're planning but uh, in a company uh there would be some people who would be following that metric day in, day out. And uh, if, because of that experiment, uh, they see a improvement or drop off, there has to be a way that they automatically come to know about that. Uh, many times what happens is that there can be co- co- collateral metrics, which uh, PM might not be aware of. But that's the unintended consequence. And if there is a follower of that specific metric, then that person would immediately come to know that, hey, uh, this this is deviating from the normal behavior. So something is uh, happening over here. And at that time, a process or a tool certainly comes in quite handy to understand that what has actually uh, led to that change in the metric that the person is observing.
0: Yeah. One of the best practices that a lot of companies follow in this regard is... Uh a, a thing called uh, subscribing to the metrics that you follow. Uh, what that allows us to do is that if there is a completely large company that is distributed across location and across teams, what, uh, so, uh, let's say I am the uh, metric owner for conversions. If I subscribe to that metric, any and every AB experiment that runs in the company, which impacts conversions, I'll get to know that if I subscribe to that. Um, a very simple analogy is that how you subscribe to certain feeds uh, in your email inbox, uh, with regards to you know blogs and stuff. So I think that's a very good practice that, uh, especially the larger companies. from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: In fact, LinkedIn does that re- really well. Uh, you guys should check out uh, their engineering blog, wherein they you know they have mentioned how uh, they are doing this and how they have you know set up the infrastructure for teams across sitting across you know continents uh, doing this. So uh, that's a wrap from our side. Uh, thanks a lot, Sora, for doing this. Thanks again for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in.
0: Thanks, guys. We have also provided the relevant links in the show notes. Also, we have other articles and podcasts on deconstruct.in. Do subscribe to our website. Thank you.